Welcome to Coffee and Geography, where my guests and I geek out about the world and everything on it, discovering that we are all geographers in some way, shape or form. I'm your host, Kit, and my pronouns are they, them or she, her. So settle down with a brew, hit that subscribe or follow button and enjoy the listen. Hi everybody, welcome back to Coffee and Geography and um, I have someone I have known for a very, very long time. Um, um, I think, I don't know Bob, what's it been? You've, you, I've been on this, we've been on the scene as geographers, we've been around each other hanging about at conferences and stuff like that, I don't know, 15 or so years oh, at maybe? Least, at least that, yeah. Yeah, Bob Digby. So you were joining me for a Coffee and Geography finally. Why did it take three seasons for me to get you on this podcast, Bob? <laughs> I don't know. I'm left answering that, wondering that myself, actually. Yeah. Perhaps it's because you didn't call it gin and geographers. Oh, uh, yeah. That, that's it. Gin, it might have been an earlier attraction. Yeah, there you go, folks. We've, we're already working on, um, you know, we've got espresso and geography. We've got the coffee house. And now we're working to see if we can get another uh, another special side hustle in for this podcast. We're going to call it gin and geographers. I think uh, we're on to something here. Right. So Bob, everybody, is a former teacher and teacher educator who still believes that no job in the world beats teaching and working with very enthusiastic colleagues and students. Bob now writes for geographical, uh, now writes geographical resources and textbooks and leads um, CPD, which is Career um, Continuous Professional Development, for those who don't know, and examines at A-level and GCSE. Bob l- lives with his husband and two spaniels at the end of a farm track in South Cornwall, which is wonderful, but you have a need to socialise. I guess that's why you're, you're here with me, Bob. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And uh, loves music, Catholic, Catholic tastes, reading, crime fiction, films, loves a good rom-com, and musical theatre. West Side Story, anyone? Uh, I've got a funny little story to tell you about that a bit later, if you remind me. Um, and Twitter. Bob really loves Twitter and geography, although that's obvious. So what a lovely little bio there. <laughs> so I do you're... love Twitter, though. I yeah. think Twitter, uh, Twitter's a great forum. Having just come back, what, three weeks ago from the GA conference, mm. one of the pleasurable things there was meeting people I'd only ever met before on Twitter. Yeah. And the lovely thing was they were as lovely in real life as they are on Twitter. So I think Twitter gives you a good handle into someone's life and someone's personality. It's great. Yeah. And um, I think when people, when some people say social media can be an echo chamber, I, I like, I always respond and say, yes, potentially, possibly, but it depends on what the kind of content you're after and what kind of feel good vibe or whatever it is you want out of it. If your echo teacher is fellow geographers, then then that's brilliant you know what's the harm in that at all you know you're learning from each other you're geeking out with each other you know some people only use um because i'm also a member of the star trek community on twitter as well right so i know i never doubted it for a minute yeah i know you're not that you'd noticed (laughs) but um so and then just geeking out with fellow uh fellow trekkers you know and they we call ourselves trek twitter it's hashtag trek twitter you know and stuff like that so yeah you can get yourself in a very positive non-toxic echo chamber through twitter um and ignore all the rest all the trolls so um it's hard sometimes but you can be done and you can and i think particularly during the pandemic there were so many people who were saying oh i've got to teach this online or i've got to teach that online and really it was the online that was the problem for them and Mm. so that got in the way of of helping them to prepare what it was they actually wanted to teach and think about how they might teach it. And there were there were armies of people out there just saying, well, I've tried this, you know, here's some resources, try that, see how it goes. And there was, there was all that support out there. It's, it's wonderful. That's that's when you get the best out of teachers, I think. When yeah. That that group, I don't want to use the word army because it makes it sound <laughs> But when you've got a group of people and you go into a lesson, whether it's online or whether it's in school, uh, knowing that you've got people behind you yeah, really matters. Totally agree. And um, I think it was on Twitter, Bob, when there was a discussion about what what is the the collective noun for geography teachers. I think that was actually a Twitter discussion. And I think it I think there was a sort of a consensus that we were going to call ourselves a confluence of geography. Conf- teachers. That's an excellent word. That's I an know. excellent word. Yeah. So we need to find Hamill would agree with that as well. I think. Oh, Alistair my goodness. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What a crack. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, good old Alistair. So, yeah, so um, that's what we're going for from this point onwards. So if you come across it on Twitter, folks, it, it probably had originated from Twitter. But, um, and I've said it before many times um, as well, Bob, both, you know, at the GA conference, online stuff like that, is that, 
you know, the, the, the community that I have found both online and offline with the geography teacher community has, has been, you know, second to almost nothing else really. Um, so when COVID came along and we were all forced into lockdown, I mean, I'd already come out of teaching by that point, but when we're all going through um, COVID and then I lost my job with the science, uh, climate science firm um, because of the Brexit mostly, and I started to feel very lonely and isolated. Um, and I was thinking to myself, well, I feel so detached from everything, but of course I could get in with the, the tre- fellow Trekkies and stuff like that. That's always a place you can go to. But in terms of my core identity of a geographer, yeah. I never, ever felt out of place in the geography teacher community. No one ever made me feel, oh, well, Kit, you're not at the chalk face anymore. You know, it's nice that you're still here, but, you know, you're, you're – you're one of those now outside looking in, you know, you're not at the chalk face. Your opinion doesn't matter. I never felt like that. No. I was always melt to feel welcome and always melt to feel valued. So yeah. I feel Thank exactly you, the same thing. I mean, I'm 74 next birthday and really I should have retired, you know, 10 years ago, <sighs> but people still seem to be pleasant and they, they think that I deserve the same kind of support as anybody else. And yeah. so that's it. It's, it's, it's great. It's lovely to feel that because I don't want to retire. I've never wanted to retire. And yep. it's good that people still think that they'll listen to you and that you've got something <laughs> to say. And you, know, you can you can get that support from people who are sometimes 50 years younger than you. Yeah. And also, the, the other thing that I love about being remaining as a member of the geography teacher community is that I'm still learning so much. Yeah. It's like, Tell me about it's it. so Tell amazing. It. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned Alistair Hamill when he puts up all his stuff on, on his Twitter feed, you know, with his about talking about tectonics and, and things like that and the way he uses visualizations and stuff. And you've got Brendan Conway and his GIS oh, stuff. And you've got, I, I could ring off so many different people, um, you know, and then what um, Shanique Harris is doing at the RGS. It's just Iram Samir bringing out, bringing her perspective in. It's just, you yeah, well, you're I, still I don't know learning. what else to say. Yeah, that's how, that's how I feel about it. You're still learning. I mean, I, I remember Alistair's discussion one evening. He got involved in theories of plate tectonic and, yeah. and how tectonic plates actually moved. And there was all kinds of things that going in there on sort of the physics of slab pull, which yeah, yeah, were new to me. And I, I mean, sent sent me away to the you know the web and specialist textbook. I mean, I I'm still a person who was sitting in a sixth form lesson one day and my geography teacher came in and said, rip up all your notes on, on continental drift because we have a new theory, which is tectonics. <laughs> That's awesome. And so it, it, it's a long time ago. It's, it's, you know, getting on for 60 years ago, but um, it's, it, it's important that we keep that same sort of freshness and we keep yeah. alive with people who know more than we do. It's wonderful when you meet people who know more than mm. you. Fabulous. I think that's that's also I wouldn't say it's unique to geography but it is something special about geography is that because it's such a wide ranging multidisciplinary thing that we all have our little areas of expertise you know I've got meteorology and climatology and things like that but but then when you speak to someone who's got another expertise and you and you link with that overlap so like someone who's like a geologist and then you 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 come together where meteorology and geology intersect yeah. you know and then you 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 learn from each other and then you start learning of this and it's just such a precious wonderful thing and then you get a third person comes in and maybe comes and brings in maybe i i don't know the 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 social side of things you know the way people live and use the land and how they how they develop around using the top rock types and based on based on the weather you're like oh my god this is just you just you just go deeper and deeper and deeper and and Do you know what? i think that begins very early on Mm-hmm. I think it, I mean, you, the way you've described it, you, you, we support each other through content and things like that, but I think it goes way, way back. Whenever I used to take six form groups on their first or second field trip, we always did it in all the schools I taught him. We did a field trip in year 12 and mm-hmm. one in year 13. And whenever, particularly in year 12, you got back from your first field trip and you'd had, say, four nights away, staying in youth hostels and things like that. And you'd get into school on the Monday morning and the geographers would be huddled together. <laughs> they'd, they'd left their previous friendship groups and they would all huddle together and they were laughing, swapping memories. Do you remember the time when, you know, they'd like, there'd be a kind of commonality of banter, 
of people doing ridiculous things or people just taking part in work activities in being part of a team. And I think that's where it goes back to. I think we mm. get that early, what would I call it? It's, it's almost like a demonstrating a role that mm. teachers do with students that they try and get students to um, work collaboratively, be collaborative and support yeah. each other. And if you don't have a full set of results, here are mine you can copy. <laughs> yeah. If you've been doing all the measurements and you didn't get a chance to measure it, and here are my results, you can copy them. And it's that kind of thing, you know. That's I think, true, actually, I think, yeah. I think we've got a lot to owe our, our previous, our early geography teachers who set this all up for us. We, yeah. We stand on the shoulders of giants. It's a cliche, <laughs> but we do. Certainly do. That actually brings back memories. So fo so folks who are not aware of the, the English system, so year 12 is like 16, 17 years of age. Year 13 is 17, 18. So if you're in the States, that's kind of like your, your sophomore and senior senior years and whatnot. But um, um, I think the memory from when I, when I was teaching and I, I gave this a go, one of my first things and, and my head of department at the time thought I was nuts to do this is that I was like, I'm, I'm going to let the kids take control of the field work. Yes. Like, okay. Um, fine. And, and then I come in as this fr fresh faced teacher and I went, no, oh, I want, I want to, I want the I want the kids to kind of like take control of this. And so we, um, so one of the things we did one year is that we took them to the, the good old North Norfolk coast. Yep. And, uh, some of those, some of the kids were more interested in the human side of things, the settlements on the coast, you know, um, what, why are there sea defenses in some places and not other places? But there are others who were really keen on the, the physical things and like, what are those sea defenses doing to the natural environment? Or how are the sea, how are the sand dunes being interrupted by human influence? Or how are they being protected? Or how do they work? What's the succession and the, um, and the the vegetation's growing on the sand dunes. I'm like, oh my god! It's like this is we're only out for one day, right? So then I thought, okay, now I got an idea. I got an idea. I said to everybody, right? Here's you've just you've just told me all the things that you're interested in that we could do on the coast, which it was a great retrieval practice actually because we'd just done a unit on coasts and they had yes. told me all these things that we'd learned, you know. So I'm like, crikey! So right, we've got all these. Right, I'll tell you what we'll do then. Get yourself a post-it and write down. Um, your top choice of those things what do you really really fancy the most and it and then stick it up on the board and i found out there was quite an even spread between things i was like interesting right so they put their names and their post-its and i just shuffed them around on the screen they went they went this what are you doing what are you doing i was like wait a minute wait a minute i was like oh this is perfect i can get you organized in groups where you've got equal representation of all these topics in a group and i'll yeah. tell you what i'm gonna do you're going to become experts in the thing that you're passionate about, but then I'm going to mix you up in the groups. So when you go on the field work for the day, you're all going to be doing that, that leadership, that little bit for the bit that you love. So um, there was one, there was one young lady, Amy, she's brilliant. She was on the um, leadership team uh, who really wanted to do the dunes and do the long profile of the dunes. And she was so keen to do that. And so, and so uh, she, got in a group with other people interested in dunes and she learned how to use a clinometer and the range in poles and the stuff like that. And so when she got her little group together, she then would talk, teach the rest of them how to do it. And I was just, and I was there on the field work, Bob, just sitting there on the, on the seawall watching this happen. It's like, these kids are just going, they're doing it themselves. They're motivated. Yes. And as you said, if we didn't get the finished thing in, in time, they got back to lessons um, the following day. Didn't quite catch that result. Can I copy your results? from Yes. Can <laughs> Just like university researchers are doing up yeah. and down the country. Yeah. Yeah, they're getting research data from the, the situations, the experiments they've set up, and they're swapping each other's data because that's how you learn. That's how yeah. you build a bank of, of data and understanding. Yeah. I mean, it, it all, I, when you were talking, I, I was just thinking of several students who were on the first cohort that I ever taught of what was known as the 16 to 19 geography project. Mm-hmm in the middle 1980s. So we're talking nearly 40 years ago, but it was a project that aimed to engage and involve young people in geography. And political um, understanding was one of its aims, and it, uh, it guaranteed independence of learning, and teachers were encouraged, and some teachers found this really hard, teachers were encouraged to take students and do exactly as, as you've described in the field, to almost go out and do a kind of recce, what are the possibilities? Yeah. You, know, you suss out the landscape, what potentials it got. Well, I was on, I took this group I'm thinking of to Holderness 
Oh yeah, which is you know like the North Norfolk coast that you described. It, it it has its villages which are fast eroding into the sea. It has places which are protected and places that aren't protected. All these questions were coming out, and I I just gave them almost like a kind of journalist's brief. Go and find out. Yep. Yeah, and come back with the questions that you've been asking and come back with the questions that you'd like further information about and what you've been finding out and who you found it out from. Do you know those kids didn't stop talking? Oh, that's brilliant. They got back about six o'clock. We had a quick dinner and they wanted to work. And I finally had to stop them and turn them to go to bed <laughs> at 11 o'clock at night. They were still talking. It was that's a amazing. wonderful experience. Yeah. It was a fabulous experience. We, we need to let go sometimes as teachers. We've yeah. been encouraged to think – this is the content I've got to get through today, or this is what mm. we're going to, we're going to go to North Norfolk because it shows us how cliffs erode. And I'm going to teach them about how cliffs erode, not about how we respond to mm. the landscape as human beings and, and so on. So yeah, yeah I, I understand everything you, you were saying there. I, my mind was alive with all these memories of, of past students. Yeah. And it was just so lovely. Like when, when, when they were, the kids would rotate around and do things. So when, when a, a group went on to do the sand dunes, the kid who, chose to specialize in that was really fired really motivated in leading their group and it it was a rising tide for everyone else in that group who didn't choose that option and then when yes. they went around to look at the sea defenses and then the, the the child in that group was interested in the sea defenses and so they took the lead of the group because they to do what they want to do it rose everybody else up because yes. and then of course when you get back into um when you get back into class and everything and then you talk about how all these things link together and then they're talking and yeah. And sharing those experiences, and go. Oh well, yeah, of course. Those those sand dunes wouldn't be that shape if the seawall wasn't there down there, a few hundred meters away, and stuff like that. It's like, yes, you know, it's just like. <laughs> and you know, the most valuable thing about it all, we give we give them all a voice. Yeah, that's right. It's all about having a voice. Yeah, so important. I know it's beautiful. Right, we can wax lyrical about this all the time, and and folks know that student voice is something I'm very passionate about. But before we do, let's uh, bring it back to uh, bring it back to to you a bit more, Bob, and uh, South Cornwall. So, yes. um, so you're near uh, Mevergesi, I believe. Yes, is that right? That's right. That's that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've got what I like to do at this, folks. As folks know, is I got me my map up to have a look around. Um, what a beautiful part of the world is. Right. Okay. So. Um, what, how shall I approach this question? So usually what I say, Bob, is I usually say, um, if you could describe, um, your identity through your location, I mean, are you, are you Cornwall born and bred or did you move? Are you, uh, an immigrant to, into Cornwall or so have you brought some kind of identity down with you? Oh, you know, all, what is it about Cornwall? Yeah. So what is it about Cornwall that speaks Cornwall? to you as your identity? Oh. And how has it maybe mingled with something in your past as well? Well, first of all, I'm an Essex boy. I was born Yay. in Essex. <laughs> I'm an Essex girl, so. <laughs> Harlow. Yeah, well, Chelmsford in my case. And oh, you're only up the road from me, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my parents always had a passion for Cornwall. We went on holiday to Cornwall three times before we finally took the decision to move. And for the first five years, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. We lived down, guess what, at the end of a farm track, which is very similar to the kind of place I live in now. But when you're <laughs> aged 11 to 15 or 16, that's not much fun. I was used to living in a, a, a village where there were lots of people. The people I went to school with were the friends I saw at weekends and that kind of thing. And suddenly it became quite a lonely existence. Mm. But Cornwall eats at you like that, that while all that was going on and while I was conscious of all that – um. I began to notice that I love the North Coast beaches of Cornwall and I like the South Coast. Um, the, 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 I suppose you call it the, the, just the fishing village. That's what Mevagissi is now. It's a fishing village and right. the character of those. And I went to school in Sedorstal and I had strange, I had an excellent, I had an outstanding geography teacher, but I also had a very, very good history teacher whose love was history and the landscape. Oh, nice. And, and who came to Cornwall because he was interested in learning about the history of the Industrial Revolution through landscape. If any of the listeners know the W.G. Hoskins book, The Making of the English Landscape, um, when he used to teach me, it was all about W.G. Hoskins' Making of the English Landscape. And I read that when I was about 16, cover to cover. It's one of the very few. I'm not an academic, um, but I read it cover to cover at the age of 16 and loved that book. Um because I could recognize what Cornwall meant to me, um, that it was actually, it was about the past. 
in the landscape. Um, it was about process in the landscape, historical process, but geological process, geomorphological process. I was learning all these things. And when I left to go to university at age 18 and I went to Kiel, all that was kind of further developed by the holidays when I came home to Cornwall. But I'd by then got a new infusion of knowledge about geology. Because if you did geography at Keele University, where I, I studied for four years, you had to do geology as a subsid. And anybody who loves geology, they're immediately a friend because I love geology and I love the two years that I spent doing geology as a subsid. But every time I've got thinking about geology, somehow Cornwall was always there as a hook to hang it on. <laughs> right. It's like it had eaten its way into my system and... So even though I went to Nottingham to do my PGCE in, strangely, actually, history and humanities <laughs> rather than geography, the very first teaching practice I was ever asked to, um, uh, first class I was ever asked to teach was a class about Japan and geography and the geology oh. of Japan. Huh. And again, the examples I was giving from them, I found, suddenly found at one point I'd lapsed into not teaching about the geography of Japan. It was about the geography of Cornwall and the geology of Cornwall and what we could learn from the geology and the landscape. Huh. And every time I've ever thought about, you know, I went to teach in Leeds. I remember during the summer of 1976 that everybody in my generation remembers, I would wake up on sunny days and wonder what the north coast beaches of Cornwall looked like in that in that same weather. Leeds was lovely. I loved Leeds, but what did Cornwall look like? It was it was mm. always there. So Cornwall oh. does eat its way into your landscape. It, it does identify with you. Um, it's it's a pretty landscape. It's a varied landscape. It's a very human landscape and a historical landscape. Um, and and I love it. But as you pointed out in the blurb that I sent you before uh, we began this, I do need to see people. I'm a very yeah. much a social being. And when you're living down at the end of a farm track, sometimes you don't <laughs> see all the people that you really would like to see. And I've had mm. friends because I've taught in different places in, in Leeds and Sheffield and, and London and, and, and so on. I, I have friends all over the country and I want to see those friends and I miss those friends sometimes. Oh. So Cornwall is all about a kind of yin and yang. It's got so much to offer, but it's also saying to you, you're not going to get everything you want down here. It's not perfect. Mm. It's been wow. like those programs that um, Simon Reeve has done on Cornwall where he's shown <laughs> the poverty behind the landscape. Right. But there is that. But I think he's shown people a version of Cornwall that they might not see if they came down here on holiday. And all power to his elbow. And it's a bit like that with me. There are all those visible bits that I love and you know, really want to be part of. But equally, there's some part of it saying to me, I'm not going to give you everything. Isn't that, isn't that, but that, that in itself is enticing and romantic. Mm. Really. Oh, I think yeah. it, I mean, I, I, I'm also, as you, as you were, but I'm also being, being, I'm a, I'm a sci-fi fancy geek. I, I buy, I do buy into this. Um, it's kind of, it was a narr narrative of the matrix as well. I do kind of buy into this. You don't really want a full utopia because <laughs> there's to, to, you know, to be human is to, is to challenge yourself is to, is to struggle in some ways. Yes. And so, so it almost, it's almost as though Cornwall can speak to that kind of person. that so like, it, it has all this beauty, but it's not a utopia. And it's always, yeah, gets you thinking about, you know, what else there is that you could be missing. Yes. But it's romantic. Well, certain things are lovely about it. I mean, it's, yeah. if you go to a bus stop anywhere in Cornwall, I mean, and there was somebody else standing at the bus stop, you would be considered really rude if you didn't speak to them. All right. <laughs> you would just start up a conversation. Now, anybody listening to this broadcast who lives in London will think how strange to talk to people standing at bus stops. I mean, yes, <laughs> <laughs> you just don't find that. Um, or just in Chelmsford or Harlow, to be honest. Yeah. Or Chelmsford and Harlow, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned about the ge obviously the geology of of the area is such a it's such a fascinating thing. I mean, you've got uh, you know Dartmoor is it, itself, 
which you know sticks up as it does but it's got that unique geology around it and um which is pretty, it looms. pretty cool it looms yep. to start more yeah so yeah that the granite intrusion that comes up and it and you've got that and then you've got and you go towards the north coast you know an exmoor national park and you've got those those sandstone formations and things like that yes. that have been quite very very stratified and squished and things yeah. it's just you've got such a variety of 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 stuff in that landscape but i'm really interested about what you said about um you mentioned about how the the geology uh, links in with the, the human landscape and you mentioned about the geology yeah. and there's a link between geology and poverty so you just just elaborate on that a little bit because when you said that that really fascinated me yeah I, I, I one of the parts of cornwall that i'm really fascinated by is west cornwall it's it's known that the whole area to people who know cornwall is cape cornwall and it's the area that's bounded by Penzance, Land's End and St. Ives. And it's the bit where Poldark was filmed. Everybody knows it from television and having seen Poldark. But the relationship there is really strong between people and geology because copper and tin reserves were found there many centuries ago. And during the Industrial Revolution, the workers would walk really sometimes down very, very dangerous cliffs, cliff faces mm. to get to work in the mines. And they would face equally dangerous environments when they got to the mine to dig out the the veins of, of, of tin and copper. So there's that there's that fascination. But there's also the the beauty in the fact that that's been left. It's been left for people to see. Um, and mining is a is a is a kind of well, it's a gift and it's a and it's a problem as as mm. many geographers have pointed out because while it brings during times of prosperity, it brings jobs during times of falling uh, values overseas, falling tin values, falling copper, falling copper values and so on, it leaves people unemployed. And without a welfare state to support them, then it, it means that poverty becomes a real problem. Mm. And so the people certainly in the 19th century had no option but to, but to leave, whether it was Canada or Australia. The, the Cousin Jacks, if any of, again, if any of the listeners know Show of Hands, the, the folk group, one of their best-known songs is called Cousin Jack, and it's about the miners who went to South Australia to dig out the tin and the copper there because there was more of it, of it and therefore they'd have jobs for longer. Wow. So there's all that, that sort of dimension, that interaction of people and landscape um, and how the Cornish have responded to poverty in the past by actually getting up on the two feet and, and and moving to sometimes very distant parts of the world. That's just so fascinating. And you're right. If 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 you go there as a tourist and you go there for the beaches and you go there for the landscape and you go hiking, absolutely brilliant. But this is just what makes it for me so fascinating. If you yeah. if you take the time to go to museums, look at the history, read those plaques. Yeah. You know why is that street named that? Even such yeah. as simple as that, you know, I can't think of a, a is it is there a street name near where you are which like testifies to the history of the, or the or the area? I mean, I mean, oh. like here in Nor in Norwich, for example, we've got Gas Hill. You know, Gas Hill is a very famous road in Norwich. Yeah. It's, it's about a forty, almost a forty, well, thirty degree uh, incline, and it's called Gas Hill because that's where one of the major, you know, gas. Uh, gas terminals is, and the old structure the old gas structure is actually still there on the hill um so yeah Corn cornwall cornwall is is more i think wedded to its historical names so the, there's there's quite a significant um increase in cornish nationalism not in a not in a political sense though i think there are mm. people clearly who would love to see cornwall as an independent state i mean i'm, I'm quite sure there are those people there yeah. but i think they're the big contribution at the moment is the cultural contribution of the Cornish language and Cornish landscape to a kind of Cornish sense of being. And I think really going back to the first question you asked about what Cornwall means to me is I think the more you know Cornwall and the more you understand Cornwall, and it's that understanding. I, I can't say for, for all the 15 years or so that I lived in London that I understand London. I wish I did because I <laughs> love London dearly. I really do. It's it's almost as much a part of me as Cornwall is, but I don't understand London in the same way. I do yeah. have a deep understanding of Cornwall and what it means to be Cornish and to feel connected to the landscape and the people and the history and everything around you.
Hi folks, a chance for you to recharge your brew, but also a polite prod to remind you that it's so easy to support this podcast. Simply liking, sharing, rating and reviewing means that it will get on more people's radar. Also, there are a few links down in the description which may be of mutual benefit. Please do check them out. So we we were talking about books you know yeah. um a little bit there and uh, you do love your reading your your crime fiction and your and your rom-coms uh watching your rom-coms <laughs> so what's the um so what would you say is your is your your favorite fiction book and maybe your favorite rom-com at the moment it might you know it might change and fluctuate oh. but if you, were to, if you were on your desert island disc bob what would yeah. you what would you favorite say fiction book is actually nothing to do with crime novels because my favorite oh, okay. books is actually the tales of the city series by Armistead Morpin. Okay. Which are just wonderful books. They give a sense of place through San Francisco. They're about the early emergence of a gay culture and gay identity and gay liberation and gay anxiety and about AIDS in the 1980s and what that meant to be gay. Um, They are wonderful books. They're funny. They're human. They'll make you laugh. They'll make you cry in in equal measure and full of the most wonderful characters. So that's that's my favorite. That that, without any doubt at all. If I if uh, if I was asked by you know um, you know what sort of book would I take to a desert island? That would be be because I could read it over and over. Wow. So Tales of the City is a series of nine novels written by American author Armistead Morpin from 1978 to 2014. Wow. So, I mean, my... Greatest books ever written. No doubt about it in my mind. The greatest books ever written. Tales of the City, more Tales of the City, further Tales of the City, Baby Cakes, (laughs) I'm sure of you, Michael Tovia Lives, Marianne Norton. have read them? I haven't. And for someone who loves San Francisco dearly... Yeah, you, know. you must read them. Um, sorry, that sounds bullying. I'm telling you what to do. <laughs> no, no, I think it's a great recommendation. I mean, you know, San Francisco is is one of the places, you know, the Bay Area was a catalyst for me, you know, finding my identity as an LGBT yes. um, individual. And yes. and it's, it seems to me, you know, as both as a as a geographer and as a member of the LGBT community, I, it seems to sort of be right up my my, my street. Yeah. So I will uh, I will have a look at that. So we got Tales of the City in terms of a book. So then, what about um, what about a rom com? Then, so are you like a love a Love Actually fan and stuff like that? Oh or? yeah, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I think my my favourite is probably. And I'm going to go down in so many estimations because of this. Uh, my favourite is is either. Uh, the Object of My Affection, okay, which is a Jennifer Aniston film. <laughs> Jennifer Aniston, Aniston yeah. Paul Rudd, and oh, uh, it's just so many great actors, <laughs> actors and actresses. It's wonderful, and it's you can watch it so many times over, and it's fun every time. Or do I dare say My Best Friend's Wedding, which I also oh. love. <laughs> and they're easy films. If it's a wet day in January, you can watch it and love it. And if it's a a day in July, late at night, when you know you're tired, you've been sleeping out in the sun all day, and you're feeling a bit sunburnt, feeling feeling a bit sorry for yourself. You can just put it on the on the hard yeah. drive, and yeah, enjoy. Yeah, it. yeah. okay. No, nope, that's fair How enough. Shallow. I don't think so. Bob. <laughs> you know, we've had such a deep conversation. You know, <laughs> you've got you've got to have your shallow. You've got to have your pools and your riffles, Bob. You have. You, know. you have definitely. <laughs> yeah. If you're not a geographer, you have no idea what kind of analogy I just made there. But you have to go look it up. <laughs> we'll, go <with laughs> it. we'll go with it. We'll go definitely. with it. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I mean, I suppose it counts as a rom com, but definitely more of a romance than a comedy. But um, I quite like uh, Serendipity with Kate Beckett. I'm just a massive Kate Beckett yes. fan, to be honest. Yes. Um, so that's something I really. Uh, yeah, that's one of my favourite movies in, in in that genre, but yeah, but you've you know you've got um, but love actually is 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 quite funny because of the connection with my family because my um my wife and her mum's side of the family are from Wisconsin, so okay. um so the bit where where the 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 dude goes to um I'm gonna go to America and I'm gonna meet some American girls American <laughs> chicks and he goes to 
Milwaukee. Yes. <laughs> and they're all going like, oh, you're so British. Say table. I was like, table. Yes. <laughs> and it's and exactly. Do you, do you know the Queen? And that sort of <laughs> yes, thing. Yes, you know the Queen. Yeah. 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 I know. So, and but it's so funny because I went over to um, when I was. I don't know what how my parents let me do this but me and my best friend went over to the USA to to stay with a friend in Michigan and it wasn't like you know tourist Michigan or anything like that it was uh, in suburban Detroit right yeah <laughs> um to see stay with these friends for a week and so you know took us out did all these things you know just what you do you only do and because very rarely people there's no tourists in that area like i was like this exotic brit and i had the exact same thing i was like oh your accent it's so lovely it's like you say this it's like god a burger and fries please burger and fries please oh they're so cute (laughs) (laughs) it's real folks that moment in love actually when they go about the british accent they do they do yeah I i played it i laid it on thick bob i laid it on thick no, I think it, I think it needs laying on thick. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, I want to. Oh, I just want to move on to next. Right, spilling the beans now, Bob. Right, because yeah. um, this is <laughs> this is something I want you to. You said you're not revealing any of your childhood crushes because you had too many. That's fine. That's fine. We can skip that one. We've all had childhood crushes. Oh, so many though. For goodness sake. Uh, <laughs> And you've got here, everything has a geographical dimension, geography is everywhere, but does being a former bus conductor count? Oh, yes. Wow. What a great job. Okay, so was was this in was this in said London? You were talking about earlier? No, this this was in Cornwall. Um, Do tell, do tell. So I was a bus conductor for three summers, university vacation time. Um, my parents ran the local pub in a little town in East Cornwall called Callington. And the bus drivers and bus conductors used to come in and, and, and drink and eat in there. And so there was a job going and I got asked if I'd like it. And I didn't think I would. I didn't think I'd li- like that very much. Do you know, I loved it. Mick, Mick, my husband, always says that within me, there's a right little performer waiting to get out. <laughs> and it was great. You could you could just go onto the buses and be a bit of a performer. You know, you could you could chat to people, you could talk and you know, serious, yeah. you could talk funny things, you could pass little jokes, you could cheer up old ladies and old gentlemen and things like that. And oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I did this the shift that none of the other blokes wanted to do, because it was all blokes in those days, but driving buses and conducting yeah. on buses. Um, I got given the shift that was um, shuffling students around between three sites of a school that had recently uh, become comprehensive from being a grammar school and two secondary modern schools. It was Saltash School. There's no point in keeping it secret. It's (laughs) it's not harming anybody to to name the school. It's a lovely school now. It was a lovely school then. But if you had – the way that the school worked was, because they were now on three three separate sites, the kids would have, say, maths on one site. Then they'd go to geography on another site and then art on another site. So this bus shift was just shifting kids around the site, around the town all day long. The sites were about a mile apart. So the bus was there to get kids to lessons. And the blokes were saying to me before I started, oh, you know, you'll have hell with those kids. They're awful and so on. I love them. I thought it was great. And I came away at the end of that shift thinking, well, I'll only be a bus conductor during the vacation, but I know I'm going to teach. I just knew it from, from that point. Wow. So it was wow. a great job. And, you know, traveling around Cornwall in the, in the summer sunshine, being paid for it was a great job to do. But um, it, it gave me that long-term gift, as I call it. What a great – oh, that is probably the – that is the lovely, loveliest – my entry into into a teaching profession, I think I've heard of. That's amazing. I'm, well, I, well, seriously, because I I would never have thought. So, so mine mine was, I suppose, mine was classic-ish in a way. Typical-ish is that I I did Camp America, and then I and I really enjoyed looking after the kids at Camp yes. America. And then I thought that when it was time for me to do something postgraduate, I thought oh, I'll give teaching a go. So I did something with kids. So I got, but. I never would have seen seen being a bus conductor <laughs> leading to a teaching profession, but 
because that is such a unique story because of that because of that score that had to go with three different sites and you had to wow yeah folks if can you can you top bob's story about how i became a teacher please because if right into coffee and geography please so but it was um, like, like a real damascene moment you know you suddenly think i know what i'm going to do and, that, I and don't then all think of a sudden you, get, you don't get many of those moments in life but that was that was one so i mean let, let's let's speak to the let's speak to those who who may not know because we we do have some non-teachers uh, uh listening so i i can probably guess the kind of conversations you would have and, and fellow um teachers could probably guess the kind of but can you can you give us an example of maybe a, a kind of like a typical kind of bit of banter a bit of conversation you would have with those kids as as they were as you were carting them from uh, as a conductor from one lesson to another well you you could you could just simply say which lesson are you going to and they'd say oh maths <laughs> or you know we've got this grumpy geography teacher or something like that and it would just kind of open up little stories that they wanted to tell you and sometimes i think i began to get that insight and i, and I don't mean to dress myself up here in any in any way at all oh, go for but, it. I, but i think i quickly learned that just by chatting to kids and maybe sort of feeding back and having a little joke with them you could change their mood. Adolescents live on this knife edge between sort of, you know, a downer and an upper and whatever. And they just, uh, you know, five minutes later, you can see an adolescent and often they'll be completely different from the, the person you saw five or 10 minutes earlier. Yeah. Um, and you could, you could affect that behavior. And I thought, I think it made me realize that teachers have a phenomenal amount of power and influence. And I thought yeah. if that's, if that's used properly, then you're then you're working for the good. Now, obviously, you know, no teacher, no human being ever gets that right the whole time. Of course, you don't. But you can strive for yeah. it. And you can try and say things that you know and, and help kids in a way that lifts them a bit and shows them there's a, there's a way forward. Absolutely, and just it's such it's such an empower a powerful thing that you can do when you just treat them as human beings. And yeah. you recognize them for the who they are and the stories that they have to tell. And I always yeah. like to think that that people say, what kind of resort? When I, I used to, when I used to do um, this, this course for teach, uh, teacher training course I used to run at the University of Sanger, I used to say to the, the trainee teachers, I want you to close your eyes. I want you to imagine the classroom. I want you to tell me all the resources that you think you, there would be in a classroom. And it was an Almost every time, Bob, it was only once it ever happened, but almost every time, not a single one said the kids themselves, the students. Really? Yeah. But th these were fresh-faced teachers just coming out of a degree and stuff like that, bless them. But the point of the activity was to tell them is that, the you know, the resource and, and the, the tools that are at your disposal are not necessarily that box of glue sticks where half the lids are missing or the pencils that have been put in are not the right way and then some of the, the, the leads are broken, all that kind of stuff, is actually if your white, white ball goes down, the electricity goes off, the TV's not working, because when I first started teaching, you used to wield a TV in and you had the overhead oh, projector. Yeah, that, would, yeah, yeah, yeah. that wouldn't turn on, all that kind of stuff. Have no fear because you've got 20 to 30 resources right in front of you. And that's yes. the kids. And so that, and that's how I used to start that, that, that session. And, um, yeah. And then they would come away with so, and then, then the penny would drop and say, well, of course it makes total sense. And then, um, and if you're, if you're, if you're having a tough day teaching, you can actually rely on those kids to kind of give yourself a boost in the yes. same manner that you would give them a boost. Yes. By chatting, yes. by having a bit of a laugh, by saying to them, yeah, it's been a bit of a tough day, you know, or the, the, I was, I couldn't get, I was delayed getting such and such to nursery. So I've got in late. I didn't get in and I like, Oh, and there's this one young, um, lady, I'll mention her Tegan. Um, very, uh, very fond memories of Tegan used to knock on my classroom door every lunchtime. I'm like, excuse me, Miss Rackley, have you had your lunch yet? I'm like, no, I've just, uh, I'm just trying to, and she would like, I'm going to stand in this doorway and I'm going to keep knocking on this door until you get up and you go down the cafeteria. I'm like, oh, like she, she used to mother me, yeah. you know? Um, but why did that happen? It was because we had that, we had that student teacher professional relationship where I taught a lot, treated her as a human being. She treated me like a human being and um, you, you form those relationships and it's, it's such a, such a magical thing when that happens. Yeah. And, and, there's a there's a phrase I forget who uses the, the phrase in in teaching literature, but there's this phrase which I don't really like, but in this case it really applies, which is the kids are ready to learn. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, crikey. I remember that being one. Because if students come into the classroom and they're not ready to learn, you know, if they've got things on their mind that have upset them or, or whatever's happened, they're not ready to learn and nothing you can do or say will change that. Yeah. But you can. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and I used to use that phrase quite, I was uh, one reason why I left teacher profession because I was starting to feel way too institutionalized and I used to use that phrase way too much, you know. Yeah. So, you, of course, you know, what would I say? I don't know what I would say differently now, but it's, uh, yeah. I'm ready to learn with you or let's learn together. No, it's all becoming cliche and, and silly. Or maybe now. not give it a name, just get in and do it. Just get in and yeah. do it. Yeah. Just, get in just and start do it. the lesson and that's it. And yeah. So even the hangover of being institutionalized, I'm feeling like there has to be a phrase. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, Bob, we uh, will we will start drawing this uh, wonderful, wonderful chat to a close. Um, we're going to do one last thing, uh, and I'm going to link you back to um, the previous guest because uh, uh, last time I had the wonderful Jen Monk on. Yeah. Uh, and she was absolutely tickled to hear that you were following her because uh, um, I don't say who the next guest is going to be um, right. before this little this little feature that we're going to do because it will spoil it and it wouldn't be fun. But the We Are All Geographers feature is when we give a word, the, the guest gives a word for the following guest to match the geography for 30 seconds. If they struggle okay. with that, they can just talk about it for 30 seconds. It's fine. So... Um, so uh, Jen had to talk about the word toaster because we, we, for some strange reason, we had a run of white goods and kitchen goods. So right. toaster. And then Jen wanted to carry on with this whole kitchen theme, right? And uh, she was like, looking around. She said, uh, I'm going to give the next guest that got to talk about tomato ketchup for 30 seconds. Well, I love tomato ketchup. Well, yeah, it's going to be suit how, you. How could you not love tomato ketchup? And, um, and, uh, and then... Uh, after we finished recording and then said to her, Jen, you know, that's the, that's what you've just given Bob Digby. And she just, <laughs> just like, so she's, she's going to be listening very keenly, Bob, to you talk about tomato ketchup for 30 seconds. Well, Mick and I have a lovely gardener called Darren who comes to help out with the garden because we're lucky enough to have quite a big garden and it needs a lot of maintenance. And he comes in on, on his day when he works for us which is every other monday he comes in for bacon sandwiches on monday lunchtime on which he refuses to have tomato ketchup and i don't understand anyone in the world who can put avoid putting bacon and tomato ketchup together because if ever there was a a marriage made in heaven it is bacon and tomato ketchup wow so there we go that's what i think about tomato ketchup i love tomato ketchup there you go folks yeah. I used to eat tomato ketchup sandwiches when I was a child if I was if I, I was hungry. Okay. Now, I will admit I was one of those kids who went for a phase of tomato ketchup on everything. Yep. So even so it would be like okay, so your your typical stuff, right? It's, um pie and mash, sausage mash fine, tomato ketchup. Yep, that's fine. Um pizza, tomato oh. ketchup on top of it. Oh, really? Oh, that yeah. might be good. that's a bit pasta. So I ketchup on that. Yeah, it was. I just went through this phase where it just lumped it on everything. I don't know why. I was just probably my taste buds were acting up for adolescence. <laughs> I don't know, and I just felt tomato ketchup was maybe this 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 mental anchor that got me through my food. I don't know. That's <laughs> just what it was. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, oh no. Right. Um, so, what are you going to uh, give for the next guest, um, Bob? What's going to be your uh, word or phrase that they're going to chat about for thirty seconds? Well, this is the thing I last used before we I, we came on air on this. So I'm going to say scissors. Scissors. And go. actually, Bob That's is showing me of some very shiny pair of metal scissors. Yes. Okay. Well, yeah, we get we get a little a little bit more sensible, folks. So we've we've gone through this whole craziness <laughs> of posters and tomato ketchup, and now we've got scissors. We can actually do something with scissors. Well, now. either that, or I've got a mouse mat which has got Andrew Scott. <laughs> <laughs> If if uh, if you were if you were ten years old, would that be one of your childhood crushes, Bob? If I was forty years old, it might be one of my childhood <laughs> crushes. <laughs> don't, don't set boundaries around this one. No, oh, <laughs> fair enough. Wow. Yeah. No. I have hey. a, I have a, a school friend of some sixty-one years. We've been friends, and she gave me that for Christmas two years ago. Wonderful. So, yeah. She knows you very well. 
she knows me very well indeed. indeed. <laughs> oh, Bob, this has been so, so delightful. So before we, uh, before we shout, um, shoot off then, so you got any shout outs you'd like to give? It's a, this is the hardest question of the entire podcast is who do you want to say hi to? If yeah, it, it, it is. I, I, I'm going to shout out to an organization, the GA, because I love the GA and I don't do what I do with the GA because I, out of a sense of duty, it is a sense of duty, but I love the GA and I love the people within it. Mm-hmm. And being part of it is an absolute privilege. Um, I'm going to give a, give a shout out to all the people on Twitter. They know who they are. Oh. <laughs> who are just brilliant, absolutely wonderful for, for supporting each other. I, as I, I, I think I've kind of intimated, I'm kind of, I'm in the back seat now as far as the classroom teaching career is concerned. You know, but there are lots of people who get up every morning and go to work. Some of them are up, you know, there's one guy I follow. He's up at about 25 to 6 each morning. Yeah. You know, he catches the DLR to get to teach in East London. And, you know, he's a Senko and so on. I just think of people like that. And there's Paula Owens, who does all her wonderful primary work. And yep. Paula's like me. She's never going to stop working. I know that. Um, because she brings a lot of love to the job. And so yeah. I'd like to just give a big shout out to anybody who brings love to the job, because I think Aww. that's what teaching is all about. Oh, that's beautiful. And you mentioned Twitter. So um, I'm, I imagine that a lot of people listening, Bob, have already connected with you on Twitter. But if for some strange reason they haven't yet <laughs> or they're learning about you for the first time now, how can they find you on Twitter? What's your Or if they're thinking, who is this geezer? Who and is this geezer? Shut up. <laughs> let, me, let me unfollow him right now. It's, it's at Bob Digby. There you go. Simple as that, folks. At Bob Digby, please, please do connect with Bob. Um, as I said, he um, loves his Twitter, and he'll be very, very happy to connect and uh, chat to you about all things geography and Adam Scott. Right, <laughs> <laughs> Bob. Thank you so, so much. This was long overdue. Um, I've had such fun, such a laugh, and it's been um, great to just have the opportunity just to sit down and chat to you um, for once. So. Because yeah, um, we're all sometimes we're passing ships of the night when we're at a conference and we're busy, we get to chat, but we're then yeah. shooting off to a session or something like that. But to sit down and have an hour's chat with you, Bob, has been absolutely delightful. So thank well, you so much. It's been a privilege. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you had fun. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe so more stories and experiences can drop into your favourite podcast app. If you fancy being a guest or have any feedback, follow us on Twitter at CoffeeJogPod and send us a DM. Or you could email coffeeandjog at geogramblings.com. Until next time, keep geogging.